Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Tadzalmanovic. Earlier this week, I was joined online by Dr. Puyan Tamimi Arab to discuss his monograph, Amplifying Islam in the European Soundscape, Religious Pluralism and Secularism in the Netherlands. The book was published recently by Bloomsbury Press, and it's an extraordinary addition to current debates about the changing face of Europe. The monograph focuses on the Netherlands, but it has broader implications. I'm sure that anyone interested in the study of economic migration, the current refugee crisis, or nationalism will find it very relevant. The book's emphasis on sound as a frame for analysis will be inspiring for a range of scholars. As someone interested in material culture, for example, I certainly found this perspective productive. In the midst of the gloom and doom that justly accompanies recent debates about the rise of the European far-right, Puyan's optimistic take on civic negotiations is refreshing. As you'll hear shortly, Puyan discovered that religious tolerance might actually be on the rise in the Netherlands. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Puyan. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd actually like to begin our conversation with um, maybe if you can tell us a bit about your background, your academic background, that is, and what brought you to this specific project. Yeah, so... You don't start uh, studying uh, an Islamic calls to prayer. So there was actually a long process before I got to this uh, topic. I first studied a few months uh, physics as an undergrad. Then I immediately switched to art history, uh, focusing mainly on European art history, Mm -hmm. uh, Italian Renaissance. And I did a BA in philosophy, political philosophy. Uh, I was very much interested in uh, German and Greek philosophy. And while I was, you know, focusing on these more Europe-centric studies, I was also reading uh, books by Islamic reformists, for example, Tariq Ramadan, as a kind of hobby. Uh, And then during the master's, which was in political philosophy uh, at the New School for Social Research, there I also, again, uh, read uh, texts by Muslim reformists uh, as yeah something next to my more broader interest in uh, political philosophy, especially the issue of secularism. And it was not until the PhD actually that uh, that I embarked on a you know uh, a full scale research on uh, Islam and secularism uh, in the European context. So I actually, I mean, there's so many issues I want to ask you about, but um, I thought that we might begin with some context and uh, definition. So could you maybe start us off with explaining what is the Azan, what is its history and importance to um, Islam, and then what is a soundscape? Right. So, well, very important uh, to my research uh in the Netherlands was especially that 
the Muslim call to prayer is mandatory only inside the mosque. So it's a practice that goes back to the uh, early days of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, the use of loudspeakers is a modern phenomenon. Um, and and the dissertation is is uh, I mean sorry excuse me the <laughs> the, the the book that is based on a yeah. dissertation mm -hmm. um, focuses mainly on the public uh, aspect of the azan so the use of the loudspeakers um, which is not considered mandatory by many Muslims throughout the world mm -hmm. uh, so this gives a kind of nice tension because. Many Muslims, especially Turkish Dutch citizens, would say, well, it's not mandatory if you go back to, let's say, uh, uh, traditional Islamic practice, but we would like to do it anyway, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it's a public expression of religion. Right. Uh, and the, the notion of soundscapes, of course, comes from a famous uh, musicologist, uh, Raymond Murray Schaefer. Uh, who uh, wrote this uh, book on uh, soundscapes in modern times, and he also coined the term uh, soundscape. Um, and he was very critical about the use of loudspeakers, right? So the loudspeakers were something that he associated with, uh, you know, modern, uh, even uh, totalitarian or semi-totalitarian uh, regimes. Uh -huh. And and he even in his in this famous book on soundscapes he even writes that Islam waned when it started to use the loudspeakers, and it's very interesting I think because the kind of uh, assumption there is that there is this traditional Islam maybe a kind of even a romantic vision of Islam that doesn't use loudspeakers, but of course in the 20th century all across the world. Uh, Muslims have been using loudspeakers. So, I mean, this call to prayer would um, ideally be sounded twice a day, right? Well, ideally, uh, <laughs> ideally, I think for many uh, more, let's say, uh, traditional uh, Muslim majority countries, we're, we're talking about five times a day, actually, mm -hmm. because of course the you pray five times a day, but uh, in the Netherlands, um, the focus is on once or twice a day for those mosques who wish to actually use loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. They don't, uh, you know, amplify the call to prayer in Amsterdam at night or in the morning. It's nothing. It's not about that. It's usually the, all these political debates about the call to prayer are about either a single uh, call to prayer once a week on Fridays mm -hmm. uh, or maybe one or two call to prayers uh, in the afternoons. Okay, we'll talk in a second about what this struggle um, over the call to prayer actually exposes um, right. because I think, you know, for you it works as a, as a lens into, into current uh, culture. Um, but first, maybe just another context question and that is... Um, what is the place of religion and public worship in the Netherlands, um, as well as what is the history of Muslim presence uh, in the country? Right. So that is uh, <laughs> that's quite a complex. Two question. big questions uh, to start with. <laughs> right. So I think what I try to show in the book uh, is that 
you can uh, see that in the Netherlands, uh, a country that was once uh, could be described by this, uh, using the idea of a Protestant fatherland, right? Mm -hmm. A country where Catholics were not allowed to sing uh, in public, uh, where even if Catholics would kneel uh, in public and take off their hats, that would be experienced as extremely shocking. Uh, from such a country, and where also Catholics were not allowed to ring church bells for many centuries after the uh, Reformation, uh, and they could only construct churches after the French Revolution. Uh, in the 20th century, there is a very interesting, um, uh, maybe, uh, convergence uh, around the idea of religious freedom, and that includes uh, not only for Christians, Catholics, Protestants, but also for, for Muslims, uh, Sikhs, and others to publicly practice the religion. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, the Catholic, uh, the notorious prohibition on Catholic processions was uh, officially lifted as late as 1983. Mm -hmm. uh, although there were, of course, Catholic processions uh, occurring. Uh, and this lifting on the ban against Catholic processions coincided with enabling other religions, for example, uh, Islam, to publicly, uh, orally uh, express uh, uh, yeah, their religion, for so, Muslims to, to express their religion. So before, for example, there were no sounding of bells of churches? Right, there were, of course... Protestant churches, let's say in the 17th century, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But one of the assumptions uh, about church bells is that they are an unproblematic, you know, essentially <laughs> normal part of Dutch culture. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, this is not the case because Catholics could not ring church bells. Uh, for example, in Rotterdam, mm -hmm. uh, the great Catholic church in Rotterdam could not ring church bells uh, for more than 200 years, um, and only in the 19th century did Catholics started doing that again, quite with a with a vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. So Catholics really constructed many churches in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, until after World War II, the secularization process in the Netherlands, uh, or some call it the de-churching process, really got going. Um, and the difference between Catholics and Pro Protestants became less and less uh, important. Mm -hmm. And so the landscape, the soundscape also changes, right? Um, right. So um, suddenly, uh, well, your question was also about uh, when did Islam come to the Netherlands? Right. Uh, well, of course, w we are talking about uh, a former colonial empire which had in Indonesia and Suriname as, uh, you know, uh, places where, where there were many Muslims, of course, especially in Indonesia. But uh, if we talk only, if you only speak about the, let's say, the mainland, what is now the Netherlands, uh, the first mosque there was uh, constructed only after World War II uh, in The Hague. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a new phenomenon. Um, and uh, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, actually, th there was a kind of steady process of 
people who are now called former guest workers uh, from Turkey, Morocco, but also uh, from former colonial uh, settings who constructed mosques uh, and at a later stage often um, uh, also broadcasted calls to prayer. So very often the, the, the battle for the building is, is the first one, right? So the space, the struggle over space. Yeah, the, I mean, these are, uh, you, you have to imagine when, when I went to do research uh, in mosques, many people would tell me, oh, you know, building is not important. It's all about the heart and you can pray wherever you like and the whole world is a mosque <laughs> and so on. Uh, but of course, in reality, what you see is that um, maybe 50 families are willing to save up money for 20 years to construct a building, right? Okay. So that, that shows very yeah, directly that material forms of religion and building, but also sounds, are actually very important to practice uh, and to the ideas about one's position in society, regardless of, you know, what people tell, tell you that, in fact, it's all unimportant and, you know, you can pray wherever you like. I'm happy you brought that up because it's exactly what I wanted to ask you about this, um, what the lens of sound actually, to mix metaphors, but um, enabled you to, to show, because I think this is a, it's a perfect example of what you're trying to, to do to show that these kind of debates about the call to prayer are actually masking other debates that are, are, are happening, right? Like over space. Um, exactly. Is there other things that you feel that, um, that are revealed when you, when you think about sound in this way? Yeah. First of all, I think, um, what sound did for me in this research was to, um, kind of, uh, navigate the, the boundaries of tolerance. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I have a background in philosophy, so I'm very much interested in normative concepts like religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Netherlands is famous for a tradition of religious tolerance. You know, we say in the Netherlands, oh, we are so tolerant. In the Am Amsterdam Museum, it, it even says that tolerance is in the Dutch DNA. This is mm -hmm. a literal uh, quote. Um, so, the construction of buildings is something that I first started looking at and, and there already you see that there are kind of, there, there are tensions, sometimes even protests against the construction of such buildings. And this has been studied by several scholars, mm -hmm. but the sound aspect, it really shows you that, uh, it, it's kind of the red line of tolerance because sound, uh, as a scholar of sound, Isaac Weiner uh, describes it, it spills over and into, for example, your house, right? Mm -hmm. It does not respect the boundary between private and public uh, in a very sharp manner. Right. And for many uh, Dutch people, there is this idea that religion should be a private matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It should, we say, stay within the house, uh, beyond... It should stay, uh, you know, behind one's uh, closed door. door. Yeah, closed door. <laughs> yeah, but but sound doesn't respect it. Right. And 
So when I went to these uh, meetings for the first time to discuss with uh, residents and mosque uh, representatives about the call to prayer, what was really shocking to me uh, was how uh, upset people could, could get, right? You, you really have to, this is, this is where anthropology is really uh, comes in. If you want to study religious tolerance, you have to go sit there, you know, <laughs> and and experience also uh, what that feels like. Not in the capital, but somewhere, let's say, east of the country, uh, in a small town. So maybe tell us a bit about your uh, case study, because you did go to one of these towns and you kind of documented a, a local struggle um, over yeah. the call. Mm-hmm. So this is, for example, one of the chapters discusses the case of Deventer, which is a town in the east of the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And there a Turkish mosque wanted to call to prayer. And this started, by the way, uh, before the Gezi Park protests uh, in Istanbul, Mm -hmm. which is important because before those protests, kind of the... Uh, understanding of Turkish presence uh, was was different. Uh, today, of course, uh, with more and more repressive measures uh, by the Turkish government, uh, the call to prayer, uh, the, how people interpret it, is also changing. So, um, in that. In 2012, I went. I went to uh, document this series of uh, gatherings about uh, whether the mosque could not broadcast the call to prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, there were multiple uh, kind of meetings. Uh, some of them, uh, one or two of them, there were around uh, 50 people present. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found very interesting is, or or maybe counterintuitive if you study the anthropological literature is the uh, role of the municipality in all of this which was actually uh, you know the municipality really uh, tried hard I think to uh, uh, reach some kind of compromise uh, and also to to enable actually the call to prayer mm-hmm. um, for example, one of the aldermen, or we call them wethouder, upholders of the law, one of the uh, aldermen uh, of the town, who is part of the uh, conservative liberal party, he, he went through quite a long uh, process to uh, help the mosque uh, make this uh, wish come true. Uh, while at the same time, on the national level, the minister of the same political party might publicly state that, you know, such calls to prayer should be banned. Mm-hmm. So that shows that the, the local issue is very complex uh, and that if you only study, let's say, discourse, right, if you only focus on media discourse, you get a warped uh, understanding of how the state actually regulates sounds uh, in such a small town. Well, I mean, I think you kind of, you even argue a bit more forcibly to say that that's actually there is an, an, a new kind of uh, Dutch pluralism that is evident in the legislation rather than in the discourse. Yes, if I'm the, not mistaken, the, right? Exactly. So um, people debate, right? Mm-hmm. 
they might not like the label of tolerance, right? So some, some people told me I am not tolerant. I don't want to be tolerant, right? But if you study there, what they actually do, they are quite tolerant, right? They, they accept the results. For example, the result that the mosque is allowed to call to prayer every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't protest further against it. Uh, most people, of course, not everybody. Uh, and all of this is because of, let's say, uh, what I call the gorilla in the room, which is the Dutch constitution. And the Dutch constitution gives the mosques um, the power to negotiate, right? So they're not asking to be tolerated in the sense of permission, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, So we have different conceptions of a big concept, tolerance. And one of these traditional Dutch conceptions was permission, right? So something is actually not allowed, but we permit it, right? So for Mm -hmm. example, Catholics are not allowed to construct churches. However, if they have these clandestine churches, we'll accept it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not the case when we're talking about Islamic calls to prayer. What we see is that the law, which is new, uh, it was drafted in the 1980s, that this law allows new manifestations of uh, religions uh, to uh, occur in the Netherlands. And this is the effects of legal changes are also slow, right? So maybe this law is from the 1980s, but it, its effects are still playing out. Um, and you see that not, it's not just Islam. So, for example, in another city, Almere, which is a kind of working class town uh, that was constructed uh, after World War II, in Almere, there's a mosque, a Hindu temple, a Vietnamese Buddhist temple, uh, all, all next to each other, right? Mm. And the, if the mosque, let's say, wants to call to prayer, uh, the fact that the law allows it to do so gives it a kind of leverage in these uh, negotiations, right? Because technically speaking, the mosque does not require any permission, it can just announce its wish to call to prayer and then do so. Mm-hmm. So there's no permit or anything like that. So why do the mosque's um, leaders still uh, initiate these um, negotiations if it's something that could have just been done? Yeah, so this is the second part, which is that shows that bottom-up pressures against these practices are effective in minimizing the sound. Mm-hmm. So... And uh, mosque representatives, they don't want to kind of, you know, uh, engage in a kind of neighborhood war, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they want to have friendly relations with their neighbors. So what happens very often also based on the uh, past experiences and also the advice of people working at the municipality is to engage in a kind of negotiating, mm-hmm. which is called in the Netherlands, it's called polderen. Uh, and the Dutch polder, so-called polder model is a very much a kind of decentralized uh, consensus-based model of governance uh, where, you know, p- things are not solved by court cases. So I think that was very interesting in Isaac Weiner's book about the same issue in the United States, that he focused very much on court cases. Mm-hmm. But in the Netherlands, there has never been a court case about Islamic calls to prayer uh, in the last 40 years, right? Because people basically know that um, 
the law allows this practice, so they negotiate on mm -hmm. the volume and the duration and so on. So actually, it's also a negotiation about the character of the place, right? It's it's about exactly. who belongs in this um, city or townscape, who can who can make calls for negotiations and belong. Right. It's it's what I found very interesting is that some people would tell me that you know qua religion we don't need to do this but we would like to because it's a political issue okay. and it's all, it's uh, the call to prayer can um, for uh, many people uh, create a sense of belonging mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so, so, and this is a uh, quite a complex phenomenon because there are um, let's say uh, nostalgic reasons maybe mm -hmm. the elders like to listen to the call to prayer because that's what they listened to when they were young boys mm -hmm. uh, but there are also uh, other reasons for example um, a wish to uh, publicly announce presence in mm -hmm. the contemporary mm -hmm. Netherlands um, and of course uh, the call to prayer uh, in the Turkish case um, has a whole history of its own. So, f especially for Turkish people in the Netherlands, it seems to be something that is uh, very important. You know, the call to prayer is is mentioned in the Turkish national anthem, mm -hmm. uh, and it is definitely part of uh, uh, Turkish nationalist uh, sentiments. It, it produces kind of Turkish nationalist feelings. At the same time, it's also important for feeling at home as a Dutch citizen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These two, for, for ordinary people, these two things don't contradict. So I want to ask you about contemporary politics and, and the way that, um, you know, extreme right politicians use uh, exactly these sounds to talk to their voters and to signal what you call him, you know, you quote in some places as kind of the pollution right. of the of the air with, with this sound. So can you tell us, you know, like there was just the very recent election and how did these things play out in the public discourse? Right. So, um, of course... Very important uh, here is the figure of Mr. Gilt Wilders, mm -hmm. um, who in the recent elections, although he did not win, he he was the uh, second biggest uh, party in the Netherlands. Uh, and he has kind of um, changed his stance throughout the year. So he has, of course, always protested against the call to prayer in, the in let's say, the last 10 years. But... Uh, he has also called for a, uh, banning the construction of new mosques uh, and even banning the Quran, uh, which is, of course, it's just a ludicrous, uh, you know, uh, political mm -hmm. statement. Mm -hmm. And it, it has a very, I think, these kind of statements do have an impact on how people uh, experience uh, Islamic presence. So it's not just about pollution in the sense of mere noise pollution. Mm -hmm. It's pollution in the sense of Islamic noise pollution, right? But right. what I found very interesting is that in these kind of um, debates uh, on the ground level, people might not 
actually uh, use the idea of Islamic noise pollution, right? Some people will just say, no, it's just noise. I just don't want to be bothered by noise because they know that if you protest against religion, you will be uh, seen as a bigot, right? Mm -hmm. So if you just say you protest against against no, mere noise, then that's kind of better. But I think it, it becomes very clear, this kind of discourse, Kurt Wilders' discourse becomes very clear uh, if I read to you what he wrote in the, the what he spoke uh, of in the Dutch parliament a few years ago okay. about pollution. And this is what he said. He said, a better environment begins with oneself. Many Dutchmen are irritated by the pollution of public space by Islam. Right? In, in some places, our streets, our Dutch streets, increasingly resembles the streetscapes of Mecca and Tehran. Headscarves, hate beards, burkas, men in weird white dresses. Let us do something about this. Let us reconquer our streets. Let us make sure that the Netherlands will finally again look like the Netherlands. Right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, in such a kind of nationalist uh, conception of the Netherlands, um, Islamic uh, presence stands out. It's seen as something that is, you know, in the words of Mary Douglas, it's it's out of place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but something being out of place is not uh, a pure uh, physical objective uh, question, right? It's... Uh, you can see this in research on uh, noise pollution of uh, airplanes, for example, uh, where uh, the decrease of the volume of noise pollution does not mean that the uh, protests against uh, noise pollution also decrease. Right? It's, act it's actually possible that the noise lessens, but still the protests increase. And that shows very much that uh, the experience of noise pollution is socially constructed. Well, and also what is seen as noise rather than, let's say, music or, as you say, an evocation of a home or, or belonging, right? Yes, exactly. So the problem is where to uh, draw the line of the right to belong for Muslim citizens on the one hand, and on the other hand for non-Muslims who also have a right to be left alone, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is not uh, something merely of, let's say, white non-Muslim citizens versus brown Muslim citizens. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. There are also uh, Turkish Dutch citizens who don't like to hear the call to prayer, right? Um, it's not that black and white. Mm -hmm. um, but it's... the The thing is that this new Dutch pluralism that, that you indeed mentioned, it allows for a variety of public manifestations of religion mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. And this is something that is quite um, new if you look at it historically. Mm -hmm. If you not look at the past, let's say, 20 or 30, year, 30 years, but mm -hmm. the past 200 years or even more, then you see that... Uh, we we now uh, experience something that may be called a kind of unprecedented religious diversity. Which is surprising because what we're usually uh, kind of uh, hear about is the tension, right? The tension with 
exactly like with groups like the represented by far right um, and the discussion about mus- Muslim communities is in Europe is usually uh, pre- kind of constructed as a discourse of tension and crises. Well, I think the, the idea basically is that tension and crises excludes the, underst- the notion of emancipation. Mm-hmm. But what you see with the Catholics in the 19th century, the Netherlands also, is that their emancipation, which means their right to construct churches, basically, um, that their emancipation coincided with tension. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That you see that when Muslims in the Netherlands increasingly constructed mosques, it did not lead to a decrease of tension. So emancipation is not, you know, something uh, nice that everybody agrees on and <laughs> hold, holds each other hands, right? Emancipation is hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're seeing that this process is happening. Uh, so I'm actually, you know, on the one hand, there is definitely a very scary xenophobic uh you know, nationalist uh, understanding of the nation that is uh, becoming more and more popular in Europe uh, in the past, uh, let's say, 20 years. And it's frightening. On the other hand, um, for example, in a country like the Netherlands, but also Germany, also Sweden, also Great Britain, Muslims can now practice their religion uh, in a more public manner Mm -hmm. than in the Mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. So I think that we really should uh, uh, be worried about nationalism, but also at the same time realize that tension can be productive. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that, um, like along this kind of conclusion that is maybe counter to what, you know, we're um, usually told by the media, uh, that surprised you when you were conducting this uh, research? Um, by the media? Um, or not necessarily by the media, but something that you maybe came into the field thinking a certain thing and then was surprised to find that actually, you know, on the ground it's a bit different. Yes, I think for me, coming from philosophy, it is humbling to see how tolerance is actually created on the ground level. Uh, you know, philosophers like to debate about concepts. Mm-hmm. So the idea very often seems to be that you need to read many books about tolerance and you need to engage in discussions and then mm-hmm. uh, maybe become more tolerant. But that's actually not what happens. What you see is that p- there are public deliberations and people learn in a kind of hard way. Okay. They don't, they don't necessarily agree on concepts, but they learn to tolerate each other in practice. Um, and as they are deliberating, they are also at the same time disciplined by the state, which says that, you know, uh, for example, Muslims have the right to call to prayer. Uh, so deliberation, discipline, Tolerance, these are all created in practice. Um, and there, there's not this uh, conceptual debate that precedes practice. I think it's very important to understand that in reality, tolerance is created uh, by doing it. Yeah, and by mixing 
rather than yes. segregating. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, to conclude, can I ask you um, something maybe a, a little bit more personal? Because you, you sure. do write very movingly about you know growing up in a mix and migrant uh, neighborhoods and in a society that doesn't always look very favorably about you know Dutch Muslim youths. But you also um, write with a lot of pride about your mother, uh, a cultural anthropologist herself. Can you right. maybe think what this mix has done for your for this project? Like, how did it prepare you um, to think about these issues? Right. So um, I think that the fact that I was uh, born in Iran has stimulated me to take really seriously the issue of religious tolerance and also the state governance of religion. Mm -hmm. And while I agree with many uh, colleagues anthropologists that we should be very critical of notions like religious freedom or secularism. Um, I also think that it's very important to study in practice what happens and to uh, uh, do that in a way that matters to Muslims in the Netherlands, in a country like the Netherlands. So my departure point was what is required for the emancipation of Muslims in the Netherlands, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the notion of equal rights, regardless of where you come from or what your religion is, um, has been really, uh, it, it is, it is uh, central uh, to, to uh, improving the the idea of uh, religious freedom uh, in a country like the, the Netherlands, right? Religious freedom is something that's constantly being contested and negotiated. And it, there is, I think, very much space for improving it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, the, the coming from a country like Iran and, and growing up in a mixed uh, migrant uh, community, um, On the one hand, it helped me because on the one hand, I could be kind of, uh, I could identify with many of these people. Uh, I could share feelings of intimacy with them. But at the same time, uh, it also allowed me, because I am, of course, slightly different, right? They have a different background. They are from countries like Suriname, Turkey, and Morocco. It also allowed me to preserve a critical distance, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I really want to thank you for this conversation and for your fantastic book. I loved it. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>